Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, February the 12th, 2022. It is currently 12.57 p.m. Central Time, and I'm still here in the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas. I've been here now for a number of hours. We've done a lot of things, but I felt we needed to circle back to something that we did yesterday. Now, yesterday, someone sent me a clip, a sermon clip of a sermon that at least it, we, we, we thought it was the name of the sermon. Turns out it wasn't the name of the sermon. They, they sent me a link. Basically, this is what they sent me. They sent me a link to a YouTube channel that played a clip of a sermon preached by someone else. That YouTube channel, they called the clip, Not All Christians Are Going to Heaven. And it was a sermon clip uh, from Francis Chan, all right? And so we reviewed that clip. It was about 13 minutes long. We reviewed it, and I asked everyone, go find that sermon. And a lot of people are like, we can't find it. Even the person who sent me the clip, I can't find the actual sermon. I can find the clips. There's there's other people who've used clips from the sermon, but we can't find the sermon. But someone from Ohio emailed me and said, hey, I think this is the sermon. It is called Cost of Discipleship by Francis Chan. And so guess what? I now have the sermon available because here's the reason we want to find the entire sermon. This is very important because I don't like the the whole sermon clip idea that gets sent around is a sermon clip doesn't necessarily represent everything that pastor said, and it may actually misrepresent it. So I did the best I could to critique what we heard in the clip. Now, it was like 13 minutes long, so it wasn't like 30 seconds or a minute. So I think we had a a lot of context, but I still wanted everyone to have access to the whole thing. So now you do have access to the whole thing. All you have to do is go to theologycentral.net, go to the blog section, and the very first blog entry will be the entire sermon by Francis Chan. It is embedded there. You can watch it, and then you can judge for yourself if our critique yesterday was accurate or if it was inaccurate. I wanted you to know. Now, we we definitely we definitely challenged what was put forth because what was put forth was this basic idea, and I have major issues with this, and I know it's so prevalent within the evangelical world, but I, I, I just, man, I, I, in some cases, I just, it blows my mind how I feel that even evangelical Christianity is systematically destroying the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. We, we keep wanting to add in almost a works-based element, even though they will claim they're not doing that. The logical conclusion of what they're doing is just that, because it goes down this way. Yes, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, but if you don't do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, you know, go through the entire alphabet, well, then it proves you were never saved. Well, so wait a minute. So we're looking to my works to prove that I've received imputed righteousness. I receive imputed righteousness by faith alone. My works can't prove an imputed righteousness because it's imputed. It's just accredited to my account. It doesn't make me righteous in practice. It makes me righteous in my position before God. Now, I'm not saying we should not live out a righteous life. I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for righteousness. We should strive to mortify the flesh. We should strive to be godly. I'm not saying we shouldn't, 
But I'm saying that it becomes very works-based if you say, well, if you don't do this, you're not saved. If you don't do this, you're not saved. And we've talked about before all of the different tests people give. MacArthur has his test. Jonathan Edwards had his test. It's like 12 ways of knowing you're saved, 14 ways of knowing you're saved. And it'll be like, if you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. And then for every one, it will say something like, well, you're not going to do it perfect. But if you don't do this, if this doesn't show up in some way, shape or form, then I can call to, into question your salvation. And it's like, Wait a minute, you're still trying to judge an imputed righteousness by the presence of a practical righteousness, which would seem to infer that it's not an imputed righteousness, but it is an infused righteousness that I now cooperate with to demonstrate that I received that infused righteousness. But the Protestant world rejects an infused righteous justification. We are saved by an imputed righteousness. And you can't judge an imputed righteousness by the presence of a practical righteousness because an imputed righteousness doesn't put, doesn't create a practical righteousness. It doesn't produce a practical righteousness. It declares me to be perfectly righteous by faith alone. I am declared righteous not by anything I do. Not, not about, it's because by Christ kept the law on my behalf. His Think of it this way. His passive and active obedience is imputed to my account. But Christians come along like, well, if you don't do this, and 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 if you don't do this, you're probably not saved. You're probably not saved. You're probably not saved. You're probably not saved. But then even they have to admit that you're not going to do them perfectly. So now you're saying that somehow an imperfect obedience, marred and tainted by sin, some can somehow prove the presence of an imputed perfect righteousness. And, and how much do I have to demonstrate to know that I'm actually saved? And they'll be like, well, it's not perfection, it's direction. They come up with every cliche, but it really leads to basically, I will argue as someone who studied Catholicism, the Catholic understanding of an infused righteousness. It's really, it's all over the place. So we, we criticized it strongly. And someone on YouTube, they left a following comment, which I think is interesting. And it made me want to at least talk about this today. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this episode. I just want you to know it's available because I want you to, I want you to hear Francis Chan. Look, I want you to hear his entire argument. I want you to hear his entire argument and you may agree with him. That's okay. I, I'm not here to, I mean, you know, if you, if you want to go with that, that's okay. Just be consistent. And if, and you may want to, you may want to, uh, you, you may want to, you know, I don't know, consider Catholicism because you, you're almost holding to an infused righteousness, but it's okay. So two hours ago, someone wrote this. I've always heard that your actions will show your faith, but you aren't saved by your actions. But it does seem that if your actions don't match up with Christian beliefs, you aren't saved, all right? And then it goes on, uh, let me read the whole thing. At least that's what comes across to me. Makes it hard to struggle like I am and be open about it. Now, yeah, my thing is, is though, if you say, well, your actions have to prove it, again, you're looking for actions to prove imputed righteousness. So that means your imputed righteousness has to produce actions, which would mean it's not an imputed, but an infused righteousness. Like, and I'm, I'm using very specific theological language because it's literally what the whole Reformation was about. No, we reject infused righteousness. We believe in an imputed righteousness. 
And then we turn around and go, okay, now you get an imputed righteousness, but if it doesn't produce an infu- if it doesn't produce practical righteousness, then you're not saved. I'm not saying that we shouldn't live righteous. I'm saying that you've got to be very careful how you do that because you create a problem. And not only this, I think it's very interesting that even in the sermon by Francis Chan that we referenced yesterday that we listened to, he made a reference. It just, it just blows my mind how people don't catch on to this. That even in that sermon, Francis Chan referenced Matthew chapter 7, where we read these words, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now, typically that's interpreted as, okay, you can say, Lord, Lord, but you're not saved unless you do God's will. Okay, well, and they believe that that will of God there is, in other words, all of his commandments. All right, well now, all right, that would not say that you have to just go in the right direction. That would infer that you've got to do it perfectly. You're not saved unless you do the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? To be holy as he is holy. What, what is the will of the Father? I mean, you can go through commandment after commandment after commandment. You have to do that or you're not saved. And people are like, no, 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 no. You have to do the will, but you're not going to do it perfectly. But as long as you do some of it, then that proves you're saved. That is, that is, that is double speak. I believe the, the, the discussion here is you're right. Saying, calling him Lord is not going to save you unless you do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is to believe in the name of the Son in whom he sent. We talked about that in a podcast episode earlier today, that why did Jesus come? He, he came to do the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? For us to believe on the name of the Son. That's the will that saves us. Not obeying all of the commandments because you won't ever do it perfectly. So therefore you can never know you're saved because you've never done the will of the Father perfectly. So then you have to say, well, no, it's not doing it perfectly. It's just doing it 50% of the time. It falls apart. But here's what blows my mind. Nobody ever catches on. Well, wait a minute. In this very passage, you have people who point to their actions and they have some very good actions. Many will say to me uh, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. So they they put forth, hey, okay, now, hey, your actions prove your faith. Well, their actions, let's they have some pretty good actions here, right? They prophesied, so they preached, they cast out demons, and they did many wonderful works. So preaching, casting out demons, and many wonderful works, which could possibly even infer miracles, they did all of these wonderful things. Even calling him Lord. And I will profess unto them, I never knew you depart from me that ye that work iniquity. Wait a minute, wait a minute. They, they pointed to their actions. And they're not saved. Well, how is that? And some people say, well, see, because they did, they did sin. Well, okay, well, then everybody would be condemned. They are workers of iniquity because they clearly, ultimately, obviously rejected and did not truly believe in Christ. That's the only answer. The only answer there. The, if your answer is, well, they, their actions didn't match up. Well, then you're, you're making it a salvation by works, which just falls completely apart. Unless you want to go back to Catholicism. At least Catholicism is consistent, right? You are infused with righteousness. You must cooperate with that righteousness. The church is there to continue to strengthen that righteousness through the sacraments. If you sin, Certain sins will m- remove you from the, being in a state of grace. 
but we'll give you penance. There's indulgences. There's things you can do to earn back so that you can get back into a state of grace. And then even when you die, you're still going to die a sinner, right? So therefore you have to go to purgatory to get purged of all of those sins that ultimately you can get to heaven. At least they try to build some system of consistency in it. I, I will still argue there's some inconsistencies in it, but at least it's, it's more consistent than you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But if you don't do A, B, C, D, E, it proves you were never saved. However, you don't have to do A, B, C, D, and E perfectly. You just have to do it kind of, and then that's enough to prove that you're saved. But you're not really saved by doing these things. You're saved by God's grace. But if God's imputed righteousness does not produce a practical righteousness, you're not saved. But that doesn't sound like an imputed righteousness. That's, uh, yeah, it goes all over the place. But we have the sermon. Now, I'm not going to do a full review here. I just, the main thing I'm turning on the microphone is just to bring full, bring this full circle and let you know, you can go listen to Francis Chan and listen to the whole thing. And I want you to listen to it. And if you have specific questions about it, please give me the specific timestamp in the video. That's where if I need to go back and play that and then address your question, it'll make it super easy. All right. So if you watch it, let me know, but we're going to at least review a little bit of it here. We're going to review a little bit of it. And I I don't know how much, we're just going to review a little bit just to get you going in that direction, just to see if if he offers any. It's, it's, it's called cost of discipleship, which I already think is, wait a minute, I know what direction that's going. And we'll, we'll, we'll just see where he goes here. Let's just start it. Here we go. I feel like I've been gone forever. Uh, it's good to be back. Um, man, yeah. It's crazy how many things happen in one month's time, right? Nowadays, it's like you go through so much. And I was just thinking, gosh, so much has changed. Uh, you know, went through the Christmas season. We had our, our seventh kid two weeks ago. Yeah, so that was... Uh, yeah. So if I fall asleep up here, you know why. Um, but man, boy, boy, my second boy. So yeah, good times, good times. Um, And uh, this week I was in India speaking to a bunch of pastors out there. Amazing, amazing experience. And but I've been keeping up and just listening to the messages each week that have been presented here and just been so blessed um, by everything the guys have shared. Even last week. uh, Yeah. Amen. Last week uh, or actually last night was listening to Arshel's message. Good job, man. I knew you could preach. You know, it's like, why does this guy never preach? I have a feeling he can preach. And uh, it, it just, just, just been really encouraging. But t- tonight I'm, um, I'm speaking in Sacramento for a big uh, Martin Luther King uh, rally because of, uh, you know, at our, at our, our uh, state's capital. And so I've been, um, yeah, praise God. You guys are into clapping today. Good. Um, and so I, I read like 10 of Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermons this week. And I, I don't know if, I'm assuming most of you know that he was a pastor. He was a preacher, right? Okay. And in fact, I was reading one of the things he said. He says, before I was a civil rights leader, I was a preacher of the gospel. This was my first calling and it still remains my greatest commitment. You know, actually all that I do in civil rights, I do because I consider it a part of my ministry. I have no other ambitions in life but to achieve excellence in the Christian ministry. I don't plan to run for any political office. I don't plan to do anything but remain a preacher. (laughs) 
He was a preacher of the gospel. And I was so blessed in reading a bunch of his sermons. I don't know if you've ever read any of his sermons, um, but I think a lot of times when we think of him, we think of that one speech, the I have a dream speech, and we don't realize he gave a lifetime of sermons. Powerful sermon. Now, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm, I'm, I'm interested here. Um, now, the fact that he... Uh, I'm just interested in the, the clip that we heard seems like a completely different sermon than how this is starting. So I'm hoping this is the exact same. Now I'm really we're like, is this really the exact same sermon? I'm going to trust that it is. We'll have to see. But I, it just seems like this start is starting off so radically different than the clip we heard. See, see, now you put the clip back into its broader context. Do you get a completely different impression of the part that we reviewed? Did the part that was put on the internet, does it really represent the totality of the sermon? You see, that's why sermon, the, the whole thing, it's so, uh, the Gospel Coalition put out an article about this use of sermon clips to, to basically make, you know, mock, uh, pastors or make them look foolish or make them look stupid. And, 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 and because you'll see it on, on social media, someone will post a clip of a sermon and everyone underneath it will bash it and, you know, cause they're, they're the theologians and they've got it all right. And it's like sometimes like, did you go listen to the whole sermon? I'm not saying that this is a case where we got it all wrong because I still had to review what was, what was sent to me. I still had to review because someone asked me to do so. But it just, this is going, like, this is not how I thought the sermon would begin. But maybe he's going to pivot. Maybe he's starting this way, and then he's going to pivot, and boom, it's going to get to that serious, like, some of, there's a good chance many of you in this room are not saved. That's basically what he said. There's a good chance many of you here are not going to go to heaven. And you're like, whoa, that turned serious quickly. So maybe he's going to turn there here in just a minute. Here we go. You know, really, anyone can give a 15-minute speech. What was powerful about him was he lived out that speech 24-7. And that's the challenge. We live in a day and age when we overemphasize the sermon and how good was that message he gave. And we give no you know, thought of, well, does his life back it up? Let me watch the way he lives because that's what gives the message power. But as I was reading his messages, I, I saw, man, he said some things that were so unpopular, so unpopular in his day. They were right. They were biblical, but they were not popular. And I, I and I thought about this, you know. OK, now this is a this is a, a good transition. Because he's going to go with this idea that he had to say some things that, that Martin Luther King had to say some things that were not popular. Because if this is going, if this is the sermon, which I, I you know, I was told that it was, then he's getting ready to pivot and he's going to say some things that are, is not going to be very popular. So, okay. All right. I, I think maybe now, now I'm starting to feel like I see where this is going. I thought, okay, if I'm to follow in his footsteps or if we are to follow in his footsteps, it doesn't mean that we preach about civil rights right now. Because honestly, preaching about civil rights is popular. It wasn't back then. It is now. But back then, the gospel was popular. And it isn't now. You know, to follow in his footsteps means you, you, you lay out the things that are not popular. The words of Jesus are not popular right now. And to take his courage, I started praying after reading his sermons and listening to some of his speech. I was just saying, God, God, give me that type of courage. 
God, I want that type of courage where he gave his life. He knew, he knew that this could kill me. This could be the end of it. Let me, but let me lay it out because it's true. And I just began saying, God, you know what? Give me that courage. That, because we can lose it. We can lose it when we want to be accepted by people. In fact, let me read one more quote of his. Uh, in, in his message was called Paul's Letter to the American Christians um, that he preached in Alabama in, uh, in 1956. He said this, There are many Christians in America who give their ultimate allegiance to man-made systems and customs. They are afraid to be different. Their great concern is to be accepted socially. They live by some such principle as this, everybody is doing it, so it must be right. For so many of you, morality is merely group consensus. In your modern sociological lingo, the Moors are accepted as the right ways. You have unconsciously come to believe that right is discovered by taking a sort of Gallup poll of the majority opinion. How many are giving their ultimate allegiance to this way? But American Christians, I must say to you, as I said to the Roman Christians years ago, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or as I said to the Philippian Christians, you are a colony of heaven. This means that although you live in the colony of time, your ultimate allegiance is to the empire of eternity. You have a dual citizenry. You live both in time and in eternity, both in heaven and earth. Therefore, your ultimate allegiance is not to the government, not to the state, not to the nation, not to any man-made institution. The Christian owes his ultimate allegiance to God. And if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to take a stand against it. You must never allow the transitory, evanescent demands of man-made institutions to take precedence over the eternal demands of the Almighty God. Wow. It's very similar to the words of Jesus. Now we could, there's a lot there that we could talk about, but okay, I'm just, I'm just trying to see where this is going to go about this whole thing about not all Christians going to heaven and, and what he's going to do with the cost of discipleship and, and where I, I, I have a, a fear, I fear just because as a, as a pastor, I've done this so many times, um, you, you come to the pulpit with like 50 sermons, like you come to the pulpit and, and I'm, I'm, I mean, you obviously know if you listen to this program, I can obviously talk a lot, right? I can do I can do 10 programs a day and not run out of things to talk about. So in any given Sunday when I come to the pulpit, there's like there's a million things I could I could do and sometimes I try to they if you're not careful you're throwing this into a sermon, this into a sermon, this into a sermon, this into a sermon and you really had four sermons instead of one. I've been guilty of it. I'm fearful that maybe He's, he's already, he's going to be preaching at some Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther King rally. It sounds like he's already got that sermon on his mind and he's now take, trying to take the sermon he's going to be preaching that night and connect it with the sermon he's going to be pre- preaching that morning. It sounds like he's probably got multiple sermons going on, which I'm not criticizing because I've done, I mean, any preachers, and I think any preacher who loves to just read and study and study and study and study that at any given time, you're just, you've got far more to say then the time you have allotted and sometimes you, you mess your sermon up because you, you are mixing in other sermons. But I've done it a million times, so here we go. 
who in Matthew 10 says, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, don't worry about people. Don't worry about what's popular. Don't worry about how many people are going to follow you on Twitter or how many likes you get on this post. Worry about him. See, we're citizens of two worlds right now. We've got this earthly system down here, but we're also citizens of another kingdom where right now God in heaven sitting on his throne is watching me. And I'm going, okay, you, you are my king. I say what you want me to say. And if, and if everyone hates it, so be it. These are people. This is, this is a world. This is an earthly system. What do you want me to say? I just began praying, oh, God, give me that. I remember the early days. I remember really having that. I remember when I first started teaching, opening up the Bible and just going, man, this is what Jesus says. I, 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 I'm sorry. You know, I don't know what you've been taught, but let me just read it word for word. I didn't write this. This is what he said. I remember after one sermon, man, at that time, our church was only like 200 people. And I remember after I was done preaching, the worship pastor came up to me and he goes, you think anyone will be here next week? And I go, man, I mean, he was on. I go, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. But I had to say it. It was there. He goes, I'm not arguing with you. You said what was there. I'm just asking, you think anyone will show up next week? Next week, there were people sitting in the aisles. There were people crowded in front. There weren't enough chairs in that place. And I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying you preach the gospel and just let the chips fall where they may. You know, you just, you just lay it out. Paul told Timothy, look, in the last days, people aren't going to put up with sound doctrine. They'll go look for someone that will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And that's what I loved as I, I read about, you know, read different sermons of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was, wow, he just laid it out. He just said it. He wasn't thinking, how would this be accepted? In fact, if anything, he says, I, I will preach this in spite of how it will be accepted. And that's what we as believers have been called to do all throughout time is just lay it out. And so as I prayed and I said, God, what would I say? If I was 100% honest and 100% just concerned about pleasing you and saying what you want me to say, of everything I know of scripture, God, make me afraid of nothing. Just give me a heart of love for the people I'm about to speak to, not a heart that wants to be accepted. Put that aside and just love people and just say what you know scripture says. And so, as I prayed about that and searched scripture, and I'm usually not one to mince words anyways, but I thought, God, what would I say? All right. I think here comes the pivot. I think here comes the... I think here it comes. So, I think maybe, maybe, maybe we're on to the right sermon. Maybe we're on to the right sermon. Um, yeah, I think I know where this is going. Here we go. Let's let's just listen. And it would be this. I've been studying this book for over 30 years, deeply, in the Greek, in the Hebrew, 
in English. All right, this is it. This is the sermon, okay? So this is where he comes. So after that long introduction, now he's going to come in and now he starts with establishing authority. This is kind of a, I know pastors may not mean to do this, but there's a little bit of psychological kind of manipulation here. I'm not necessarily saying it's intentional or that it's evil. I'm just saying what you're establishing is, hey, I've studied the Bible, 30 years, Greek and Hebrew. I know this, right? So therefore, that kind of supposed to set everyone back so they don't question it, but they accept it. Okay, I understand. I've done the same thing because sometimes you're like, look, guys, I've studied this. Listen to me because you you almost know that you're going to get pushback. Okay, but so this 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 gets us to what we covered yesterday. I could stop this right now, but I'll let, let this at least go a little further. So that we know exactly again what he's getting ready to say, because I'm going to demonstrate what he's doing here. And it's very, very important because the, the title of this sermon is cost of discipleship. And this is the big theological divide within Christendom. It, it was a big controversy in the eighties, maybe even into the nineties. And it's not so controversial today, but it still exists. And, and I'll explain it to you in just a second. Over and over try to read through this book at least once a year because I want to know the truth. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to count on someone else telling me what it says. Best I, and I could be wrong. I'm a human being, but I'm just saying, man, best I can understand this book and what Jesus says about following him. Here's what I am most concerned about to put it as plainly as I can. I am deeply concerned that even though you are sitting in a church building, that some of you one day will go to hell to be tormented day and night forever and ever And by the time you figure it out, it'll be too late. That's my biggest concern. Look, I, I don't, look, I have a couple of fears. One fear is I don't want anyone thinking they're going to heaven if they're not. That's horrible. And the most loving thing is not to just let people go and not offend them. And wait till they figure it out at the end. But I also have another fear, man. I don't want people who know Jesus to feel like they don't. And be worried about it. <laughs> and how to walk that tension. And go, God, I don't want to just get everyone worried about their salvation. At the same time, I don't want everyone just to assume that they're saved. And so you just, you just go, I don't know how to differentiate the two. I, don't, I just try to get away from myself as much as I can and just read the words of Scripture and let it happen. But I, I tell you, I've been, I, that's what, if I'm completely honest right now, that's what I care about. I know some of you guys are struggling in your marriages, and I care, but not as much as I care about this. Some of you are struggling with sickness, and I, I care, but not as much as this. Some of you are dealing with racial tension. Some of you are, are dealing with a loss of a job. And I care, but not nearly as much as I care about this. Because this is forever. Okay? 
This is forever. You're gonna, we're all going to stand before this God. And he's going to say one of two things for you. And it lasts forever. Forever. Either well done, good and faithful servant. Man, come over here. Man, you, you're my son. You're my daughter. Get over here forever and ever. Or depart from me. I never knew you. I mean, one of the, one of the passages that... Okay, so now he's going to... Basically, that's what we reviewed yesterday. So let me just try to put this in context for you. This, this, this is the, the theological divide, all right? So he's going to go hard with this idea that, hey, some of you may not be saved. And basically the way you know you're saved is by looking at your actions. And if your actions are good, then you're saved. But then he's going to reference Matthew 7 where people look at their actions and, well, they're not saved. So how does this work? Again, how does your actions prove the, the, that you have received Imputed righteousness by faith because actions can't prove imputed faith because imputed faith is something that's just accredited to your account. It's something that is just declared to be yours. It's, it's, it's his righteousness declared to be yours. It's not your righteous acts, right? Very, very important. But here's, here's the thing. And, and a lot of this goes back to a very famous book called The Cost of Discipleship um, by Bonhoeffer. Uh, the very, very famous book. I got, I, I was introduced to it early, early on in my Christian life. And it's this idea that, hey, if you're truly a Christian, then you will be a disciple. In other words, salvation and discipleship are synonymous. They're the same thing. So when you read in the Bible, when Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple unless you do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, all these things, that's what salvation is. Like if you're going to be saved, you've got to be a disciple and to be a disciple, you have to do these things. Now, typically this is the way, it, the way the Protestant world plays this out. Now in the Catholic world, they'd be seeing like, yes, you're infused with righteousness and you have to do this or you're not going to be saved. You, In other words, you may no longer be in a state of grace. You may lose it. You have to go to purgatory. Okay, but in the Protestant world, it's this weird game. No, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. However, 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 if you're truly saved, you're going to do all these things that are required for a discipleship to, to, as a disciple. So you're saying the requirements for a disciple are the requirements for salvation. Yeah, but you don't have to do them first but you will do them. All right, so how soon after I get saved do I do them and do I have to do all of them perfectly? Well, you're never gonna do them perfectly. Wait a minute, I thought you said they're a requirement for salvation. And there's lots of these scriptures, right? There's lots of these scriptures, okay? Um, let me let me just find a number of them, okay? If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and yea, his own life, he cannot be my disciple, now, see, if you equate discipleship with salvation, you cannot be saved unless you hate mother, father, ch uh, children, brethren, sisters, even your own life. You can't be saved unless you hate everyone else. And obviously we know he's not being hate them, but the point is you must, the, compared to your commitment to Christ, it will be hate. Now, come on. Do you really even have that right perspective on family versus God? Because I've seen Christians, family, 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 family. I mean, I've seen, you've seen it as well. Well, a bunch of family came in, so we can't come to church tonight because we got family coming in. Wait a minute. You're supposed to hate them and you would never forsake God's house for them. I've seen Christians do all kinds of nonsense like that. 
right? We'll be, wait a minute, wait a minute. But, but, but they will tell you, no, no, discipleship is synonymous with salvation. Well, then you're not saved because you just demonstrated a love for your family over the love of God's house. Well, but, but they're coming in and I haven't seen. Now, is, if we separate discipleship, then I am saved by grace alone through faith alone. But to be a disciple, to be a follower of Christ as a disciple requires a whole lot of things. There's just one, right? I, again, there's just one. Um, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, he cannot be, uh, he cannot be my disciple. There's just one. You've got to basically hate everyone in comparison to your love for Christ and your commitment to Christ. And whoever did not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You have to die to yourself. You got to basically hate your family and die to yourself, right? For which of you intending to build a tower? And then he's basically saying, hey, you got to count the cost. You got to count the cost. So likewise, whosoever be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now, so you have to forsake everything. So have you forsaken everything? Have you died to yourself? And do you hate your family? If you haven't done these things, you cannot be his disciple. And if you equate discipleship with salvation, then you are not saved. And so then what we do is like, no, you have to do these things, but you don't have to do them first. You believe and you're saved, then you will do these. But if you don't do them, you're not saved, but you won't do them perfectly. But as long as you do them, kind of. <laughs> no, Jesus is like, you cannot be. He's like, you will do this or you cannot be. It's not like, no, you do it kind of. No, he may, he's dogmatic and emphatic about it. We have to separate discipleship from salvation. We have to. All right. Uh, it says here, uh, let's see here. Um, Okay, another, uh, Matthew 10, 36 through 38. And a man's foe shall be that of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Same concept there, just st stated in a different, in a different way. Um, you see here, uh, And we, we could just, we could just go on and on through these. But there's a lot of these passages that you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. If you equate that with salvation, you just literally, this is how you would have to pr preach. Okay. You, you want to be a Christian? All right. Listen, you cannot be a Christian until you are, until you do this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And, and some people say, well, no, you don't preach it that way. What you say is you must be willing to do all of these things. Now, if you say you're willing and then you don't do them, then you were never saved. So I can't tell you that you're saved because you believe in Jesus. What I can tell you is you need to believe in Jesus, but that's not going to necessarily save you because what's really going to prove that you're saved is that you do all of these things. And if you don't do all of these things, you're not saved, but you don't have to do them perfectly. So who, who judges if I'm doing them enough? Well, I don't know. You'll have to, you'll have to call you have to call some pastor and I guess they can judge and go, well, I think you're doing pretty good. You're about 50% there. You're about 60%. That, so the fact that this sermon is called the cost of discipleship and the fact that if you go back and listen to what we did yesterday, where we reviewed this entire segment that he's getting ready to, to talk about, he's going to make it very clear that unless you do things, you're not saved. And that, and because he's going to, obviously he's going to 
merge the concepts together. He's going to make them synonymous. Now, I know I was taught, I was taught that discipleship and salvation was the same thing. I taught it. I believed it. But now I question it because it's just like, wait a minute. Because again, it was the idea, it was the Catholic teaching that, that, that woke me up to the Protestant error. The Catholic teaching of an infused righteousness. I'm like, no, we don't believe in infused righteousness. And then I would go and preach. Look, if you don't do this and this and this, you're not saved. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm preaching that, you, that obviously you had to be infused with a righteousness. And if you don't do these things, it proves you, you did not receive an infused righteousness. I couldn't point to those things if it's an imputed righteousness. So I was literally preaching a Catholic version of salvation. So then I'm like, no, no, I got to, I got to, I got to back this up a little bit and I got to try to fix this. So I believe, yes, we are called to be disciples. Absolutely. But that discipleship is not the requirements for salvation. All of the requirements for discipleship are not the requirements for salvation. They are the requirement for discipleship. The requirements of salvation is, I believe, repentance in this sense, changing my mind about sin and about God and then placing my faith in Jesus Christ. Then I believe there is a repentance as a Christian where I'm trying to turn in practical ways from my sin. Now, what most people say is you have to repent of your sin, but it doesn't mean that you're going to turn from all your sin. You have to be willing to turn from all of your sin. But then <laughs> even that is just, we, we play so many verbal games with this entire subject that it just leads to a, 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 a whole realm of inconsistencies. But the goal of this podcast episode, I see, I feel like, like I need to, I need to review the whole thing, but really I don't. That gets us the introduction that determines that this is the right sermon. And we've already reviewed basically this entire segment that he's getting ready to go into. We've already reviewed all of that. But the fact that it's called the cost of discipleship clearly shows where this is going, that he's in, he's going to connect discipleship with salvation. You listen to it all, okay, theologycentral.net, go to the blog section and tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, then we will correct it. If I'm right, I don't need to say anything. But but the considering what he's getting ready to say, I mean, he just already said, hey, I'm my, my concern is people in here are not saved. Well, why? Because they don't live like a disciple. So discipleship is salvation. Well, then you got to place all of those requirements on a chart and say, here's all the things you have to do. Now, most people add even more than that. They add, you got to love the Lord, God, with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Now, you will never do it perfectly, but you have to be doing it. You have to love your neighbor yourself. You'll never do it perfectly, but you have to be doing it. And they go on and they add and they add and they add and they add. Without holiness, no one sees the Lord. So you have to be holy, but you're not going to be perfectly holy. So it's always like, you got to do these things or you're not saved, but you're not going to do them perfectly. So an imperfect obedience will be sufficient to save you because somehow this imperfect obedience will prove an imputed righteousness. It's... It's crazy, but there you have it. I wanted to at least get us to this part so that we know that this is the sermon. We have it. We've already listened to 13 minutes of it. Really about the next 10 to 15 minutes of it, we've already listened to. So that would only give us, uh, you know, I don't know how much time that would give us down to um, may, maybe about 30 or 29 minutes of it left. So may, maybe it's that last 20 minutes where something dramatic changes. Uh, but you can go listen to it and then you can email me newsif at yahoo.com. And if you listen to any of it, you have any questions, let me know. And again, I know my per perspective is not popular. I understand that. And what I, what I always tell people is 
people get so upset and want to argue and argue and argue. And it's like they get mad because they want to be able to tell people who, who's saved and who's not saved. You know, you know, look, here's the thing. If you, pr- if you think all of that proves you're saved, then by all means, live it and hold. You cling to your actions to prove you're saved. I'm going to cling. Here's the thing. You cling to your actions to prove you're saved. All right? You do that. And if that makes you feel better, great. I don't know how you can sleep at night because I can cling to my actions every day. And by the end of the day, I never feel like that my actions would prove that I'm saved because God demands perfection and all of my actions are imperfect. Even my good works are tainted by sin. And God tells me to be holy as he is holy. Every day I end the day knowing my actions would never prove that I'm saved. But if you feel comfortable in doing that, by all means, don't condemn me for saying, you know what I'm gonna cling to to prove that I'm saved? The absolute perfect work of Jesus Christ. He kept the law on my behalf. He died for me and he imputed his righteousness to me. And in Christ, I am perfectly holy, perfectly righteous and perfectly obedient. I'm perfectly obedient. I'm going to cling to the cross. I'm going to cling to the finished work of Christ. By all means, you brag about your behavior. You tell me how good you are and how it proves you're saved. But don't get upset when someone says, but wait a minute. I've seen you do this and do this and do this. How does that prove you're saved? Whoa, 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 whoa. But I'm not, but I'm doing better. No, 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 no. If you're going to say that proves you're saved, you better make sure you don't violate one part of the law because if you're guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it. And I guarantee you every day you break one part of the law. So that means every day you're guilty of all of it. So how in the world could your actions ever, ever prove you're saved? You're looking to the most corrupted, tainted actions done by a sinful person and you're gonna hold on to that for some kind of assurance of salvation? Give me a break. I'm going to hold to the perfect work of Christ as my assurance. So, well, are you saying that a person can live any way they want? I'm saying a person should not live any way they want. I'm saying if a person clearly doesn't care about God, hates God, wants to do whatever they want, I'm clear there's something's clearly wrong. We can all agree with that. But I just want to know, do, did you trust in Christ? Are you holding and clinging to his imputed righteousness? All I can do is know, did they trust in Christ? If they trust in Christ, then I'm going to treat them as a Christian and, and call them to repent and hold them accountable for their actions. But I, it, who is who, who am I to run around trying to determine who saved? Who made me the salvation police? Who say, well, you'll know them by their fruits. Isn't, that con, isn't the text there about false teachers? Isn't that the context of that? By all means, check out the fruits of false teachers. But yeah, yeah, by all means, we 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 have to try to live godly. I mean, I mean that isn't that whole Paul's argument? I mean, God forbid we should not live in, in sin any longer so that grace may abound, but that doesn't mean I look to my actions to prove that I'm saved. I hold to the finished work of Christ. So there you have it. I know it's a weird way of doing things, but that's the that I know typically we would just review the sermon. But we couldn't review the sermon because at first we didn't have the sermon. We just had a clip. Nobody could find the sermon. Then we found the sermon. So I just went back now, got us to the introduction to the part that we already reviewed. So we're doing it backwards, but I think you under, and the fact that it's called the cost of discipleship, I think demonstrates what's happening. He's, he's, he's making discipleship synonymous with salvation. And I think you have to dis, draw, make them separate. And I know you're going to disagree and that's okay. You, you, you meet all the requirements for discipleship. And then you can tell me you're saved. 
I don't, if you believe you meet all of those requirements, I think you're out of your mind. I, I do. I think you're absolutely self, I think you're, you're deceived and you're, 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 you've covered yourself in a robe of self-righteousness that you can't even see the reality of your own failures. Because I've never met the, truly met the requirements for discipleship. And if that's a requirement for salvation, then I'm not saved. I strive to be a disciple. I strive to do those things. I strive to die to self, but every day I prove I haven't died to self. So, I mean, just be honest with yourself, right? You can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I need food, so I'm going to go home. Everyone have a great, great day. Thanks for all of the hours of listening. And hopefully this was beneficial to someone. Thanks for listening. God bless.